Hello, friends. We are back with episode 97 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. A little bit of trivia about the year 1997, just because I'm feeling frisky about this. But um, 1997, for those hockey fans out there, was the year that the Detroit Red Wings entered their 42-year Stanley Cup drought. So you might say I remember that one very well, if you know me. So there's your fun fact for 1997, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about our weekly highlights, of course, and I can't do that without my great co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. I had been waiting all week on your 1997 fun fact, so I feel enlightened by that. Is that uh, Steve Eiserman? Was he on that team? Is that 1997 sure Red Wings? Okay. He was known as the captain to us. Yes, very uh, well. I know a little hockey, not a lot. Well, we can change that later on. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll follow up after the recording. But um, ironically, he is now running the team from a management perspective. So he's picking the players now, and there's a lot of optimism for this year. So we'll see what happens. Go Red Wings. Go Red Wings, yes. But um, yes, and speaking of going, well, every Art Weekly issue can only go with the help of our fine curators. And this week, it happened to be the one and only Colin Fay, who has been featured actually recently in the highlights, and he's been a busy guy. Just uh, finished uh, what looked to be an excellent presentation at the recent Shiny in Production conference that, for, that was held by Jumping Rivers. Hopefully, you get to see a recording of that. But I might say that I may have to watch the future Shiny apps I create because if I have too many widgets, Colin's probably going to come after me. So I got to watch myself. I don't know about you, Mike, but you got to have like eyes on the back of our heads with that right i heard that the talk was destroy all widgets yes and that that is a big title so i'm as well looking forward to catching any uh, notes from that presentation or, or even better a recording that comes out yeah we'll be keeping an eye on that but of course colin had tremendous help from our fellow our weekly curators and team members and of course contributors like you all around the world so let's dive into it and I dare say that if you look at the spectrum of the topics we've covered on our weekly highlights this year, and especially the past few months, we're seeing quite a pattern these days on how you as a developer and data scientist can make your life a lot easier via automation. So we're leading off this episode with another practical and really concise hybrid of automated shiny app deployment and scheduled data processing. And this is authored by Nicola Rennie, who is a data scientist from the aforementioned Jumping Rivers, making another appearance on the R Weekly Highlights with her latest tutorial blog post. And to set the stage here, we've mentioned on many episodes of this podcast before that once you sift through a little bit of noise, you can find some terrific resources around data science and the use of R on social media platforms like Twitter. And of course, you can push that little like button on a post, and it's a quick way to not only give the post author a little recognition, but also it's kind of like a pseudo way to bookmark within that platform. But let's have some real talk, Mike. I don't know about you, but sifting through all those likes within your Twitter profile is not quite the easiest way to get those links that were part of those likes. There's probably a better way. Well, of course there is. And that's where the power of Shiny and a few other packages come into play. 
So Mike, how, how did Shiny and maybe some additional packages help out Nicola's uh, adventure here? Well, she was able to create a Shiny app that just really has a simple data table, interactive, sortable data table with all of her favorited tweets, which is an incredible idea that I absolutely love because if you, Eric, I know you do, but if anybody else in the audience like us gets a lot of your data science updates, news, information from Twitter, then you probably also want a way to memorialize some of the best info that you see um, there's nothing pseudo about pseudo bookmarking when I am favoriting tweets. That is my only current way that I try to memorialize uh, tweets that, that I like and want to come back to. But it's a it's a terrible process. I have also emailed myself links to tweets before. I will admit it. Um, that is you know really hard to swallow as a data scientist. So I think I'm going to have to mooch some of Nicola's work here. Um, this is a really lightweight, shiny app, but it, it serves a great purpose, providing a much more easily navigable experience into your favorited tweets. And, and being a shiny nerd and a lover of reproducibility, um, a lot of this blog post is right up our alley, Eric. I, I know probably the same for you. So I don't know if you want to dive into any of the uh, pieces and components to this whole entire process, right? Because it's never just R, it's never just shiny. Oh, you you took my mantra, but no, you 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 have full permission to take that. It's <laughs> never just shiny here. But the real power of, of the majority of this post is in terms of once Nicola had finished this application and finished that initial data poll, who wants to manually run those deployment operations or that manual grabbing of the Twitter likes via the RTweet package, you know, with point and click and manual running of code. And that's where GitHub Actions come into play. GitHub Actions is not new to this podcast, but what I like about this is that we have actually two, two ways or two actions that are helping in this full story here. The first is the deployment of the application itself. Now, when is the app being deployed? It's being deployed anytime that Nicola changes the repository code, say an update on the main branch, that's going to automatically kick off the procedure to deploy the application. Now, this is using what's called programmatic deployment. So in packages like RS Connect from our studio, there is an easy way to build simple code to connect your shiny apps io account to your r session and then run a simple function i believe it's called deploy app with a little bit of function arguments and then you're off to the races with deploying your app that's great to do it from a script level but what nicola has done here is that she's wrapped that entire operation with the deploy script the application code and associated dependencies into a docker container you know me, I love my containers, so this was right up my alley too, so that during each push of code to the repository, this Docker container is being dynamically regenerated with the updated code files, and then that deploy script, just going to magically throw that on the Shiny Apps I.O., and don't worry, she didn't expose any confidential KPI keys or anything because GitHub lets you include those via what are called secret 
environment variables. So PSA number one on this podcast, never, ever, ever share your API keys on credentialed. Believe me, I've been there. I know people that have done it and it is painful. Just don't do it. Nuking, nuking those old commits uh, into orbit is, is not as easy as it sounds. Yes, not fun. No. Not fun. No. And, but, and poor Mike here, you heard my rants about that earlier this year when that really happened. And I don't want to deal with that again for a while, but you can save yourself some time when you don't. <laughs> yes. And secrets in GitHub is super easy. It's all through the GUI in GitHub. It's, it's point and click um, and very easy to leverage those secrets within your YAML file for your GitHub actions. So I promise it's not scary. It's all in this blog post. One of my favorite little Easter eggs, um, which is in the phenomenal inline code chunks that's interspersed between between the the, uh, the background text for the article and the code that actually shows you how to do every single step. Um, one of my favorite Easter eggs is Nicola's use of the install2.r command line tool that allows you to much more concisely install R packages uh, in your Docker file. So I dove into this a little bit because I had never seen it before. Um, and it appears to be the work of none other than Dirk Edelbutel, um, who I think is on a mission to save the world from large Docker images. Uh, <laughs> I know he's also working on a, another utility or, or maybe an image. Is it R2U or something like that? I don't know. I'll have to put it in yep. the show notes. Um, but the, it could be absolutely game-changing, the work that he's done, because Docker image size can be a huge hurdle sometimes to production deployments. Um, I'm excited to try out the install2.r utility in my next Docker file. And it looks like it might come pre-baked in the Rocker Shiny 421 image if I'm sort of interpreting that correctly. It doesn't look like that got installed anywhere else. Did you, did you catch that in the blog post, Eric? Oh, sure did. And I'm an active user of it. It's um, a big fundamental piece of my, what I call R development container setup. And where this install2.r, and he has an associated function, install github.r, these are coming from a package slash utility that has been authored a long time ago called Lidler. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that is a package that Dirk and, and, and his colleagues created so that from a command line interface, you can tell R to install any package. And so this is a clean way to save you some, you know, man, some typing in your Docker containers and to take advantage of repositories that are baked into the container, especially on the Linux side, where it's going to take the binary versions of packages right. as well. Litter is smart enough to tap into that. So this is a really understated utility. It is absolutely in every container I make. And yes, there is much more to come in this space in the future. And you talk about aha moments. This was the aha moment for me. As I mentioned, that Nicola had two GitHub Actions here. They can coexist and cooperate with each other, which is really cool because the second GitHub Action is being run on a schedule. And that's using the cron syntax and the YAML. Don't be scared by cron. We'll have a link in the show notes to where you can generate via the somewhat cryptic syntax how frequent you want to run something. In her case, she's running, I believe, every day at 8 a.m. or something like that. But the nice thing about this is that these two actions, the deploy action, the 
data aggregation action do not collide with each other. And in fact, they complement each other because of the, the data aggregation action will actually make a new commit to the repository automatically once that new Twitter data is pulled down, which then triggers a deploy action. It's all just magic, right? Oh, it's, it's, it's a beauty, thing of beauty. And then the other key piece in this, and this is gets really on the geeky side, is that for a long time, until recently, I had this misconception of these GitHub actions that behind the scenes, these were Docker containers under the hood. Actually, they're just virtual machines. Now that little nuance is important because that's why Nicola is able to basically create the Docker container in the GitHub action. Before, I thought the action was spinning up as a container. The other reason I found out about this is from a totally separate effort from a good friend of mine, Martin Winpress, who's supercharging my open broadcaster studio setup. He, with the help of the community, discovered this trick, and now he can use that to automatically make releases of his new OBS utility. That's because the behind the scenes is just a Linux virtual machine. So you're able to do a lot of system stuff that I didn't think was possible in these GitHub actions. So that's a little Easter egg for those of you who want to get really on the inside of this. But the key point to me is that you can have more than one of these actions. They can trigger communication between each other via Git commits and the like. And the nice thing about the examples that Nicole has put in is that she's got comments in the YAML before each parameter, each type, so that you can quickly see what's the purpose of this declaration, which I think if you're new to this is really, really important to really grasp just what is what is going on here. Because, you know, YAML can be a little cryptic sometimes. So it's good to have a little helping hand that Nicola has put in here. Absolutely. It's a fantastic blog post. I think we could probably spend another hour talking about it just because of how high quality of a blog post it is and how much we love all these topics. But if you're you're somebody who is really interested in full stack data science and seeing the process through from start to finish, this blog has has everything you want. I could tell a story about how I got burned by not realizing that GitHub Actions are not a Docker container and a Linux virtual machine, but we'll save that for another rainy day or uh, for, for maybe the, the blooper reel. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a few selections of that already. We like to be more productive, don't we? Well, of course, our second hobby is going to take that to another level because it seems like only yesterday that we featured Allison Hill's post that was elegantly titled, We Don't Talk About Quarto Until Now. Well, you know, you might say that opened the door a crack, but probably after our studio comp, that door's been kicked down with a steady stream of knowledge just flowing seemingly every week. And so that brings us to our second highlight where we have Isabel Velasquez and Tom Mock from our studio, soon to be posit. They're sharing the spotlight on six Quartal productivity tips that are going to help you as a Quartal document or website author to save you a lot of time and teach you even more capabilities of what Quartal has. These are coming at a great time for me personally, as I am gearing up for another workshop in November that's being built with Cordal once again. 
And so I especially like the tips that are around the use of RStudio snippets that help you create these specialized, what are called divs or fence divs. These are the sections in your Quartal document that have those like sequence of three colons with some optional settings afterwards. So to save you a little time, these snippets can get you up and running super quickly with some of the more common types of, of fence divs that you could construct, such as columns or embedding links or embedding styles. There's a lot of great snippets that are, of course, linked in the blog post. So you can supercharge your RStudio snippet installation with all of these. And then the other one I liked was that how you can include content from another Quartal document. This actually has some similarities to the way in R Markdown, you can include what are called child documents. But the other really neat aha moment is that you can not only include these child documents, but you can conditionally determine when to include this and when not to include it based on the output format. This is something that took a little bit of hackery in the R Markdown days with a Quartal. It's all built right in. This was hugely helpful to me as I recently wrote a reviewer's guide for an upcoming submission project where I authored it in both HTML and PDF. And for the HTML version, I wanted to include some additional content to take advantage of that dynamic format and leave the PDF one to get the more static content. But that conditional inclusion was so helpful to make that much easier. Now we love our continuity, right? So of course they conclude this post with sharing a dedicated GitHub repository with, you guessed it, GitHub Actions for automatic deployment of uh, publishing of Quartal documents and websites and more. Boy, I don't know what else you could want, but I, I loved reading this. I've learned a couple of things already. But um, yeah, it sounds like, Mike, you had fun learning from this post too, right? I mean, you know you're going to learn something when you see Tom Mock and Isabella Velasquez's names at the top of the blog, right? And like you, I am loving Quarto so far. I find that there is less overall friction in my Quarto experience compared to our markdown, especially when it comes to knitting and formatting and rendering. And in particular, like you, Eric, I always found it taxing uh, to knit multiple different file types. Like maybe I want to knit to HTML and PDF, and maybe those those uh, it's, it's not so easy to knit to both uh, in our markdown and, and have them look the way that I, I want them to look. And the conditional rendering is incredible. The ability within the YAML header to specify different options for each type that you're going to be rendering to is absolutely phenomenal as well. And I just used that on a project. I gave, I gave the, the client, here's the HTML version, here's the Word version, here's the PDF version. Have your pick, whichever one you want. <laughs> um, and it saved me a, a whole lot of time. Um, I used to essentially have two separate RMD files, uh, one for each output format. And it's very nice to not have to do that anymore. Um, and, and like you said, one big reason is the ability to conditionally include content based upon the, the rendering format by placing content visible when dash format equals HTML or PDF um, in, in your chunk header. So you can make it such that the code in that chunk will only execute when knitting to that particular format. 
Um, if you're like me, you might now have some RMD files that you're looking to transition to QMDs instead. And one thing that might be a pain for this transition is, is moving all of the arguments from the chunk header to right below the chunk header using the new hash pipe syntax, because that's, that's way nicer to look at than uh, putting your, your arguments in, in the chunk header. And you do not have to do this by hand. Incredibly, there is a function in the knitter package called convert chunk header that will take care of this for you. You just literally provide the OG RMD file and the destination QMD as the two arguments to this convert chunk, chunk header function and bam, the chunk options will automatically be converted for you in your output QMD file. Um, that's huge. That's huge. That's an incredible function. Whoever wrote that hat tip. Um, it, it's another productivity uh, enhancement game changer, I think, from, from the RStudio team, soon to be posit team. Yeah, there's so much. I mean, when you look at what Quartal has to offer, there is so much to, to take into your authoring tool set and the outputs and everything. And Having having it augmented with these additional tricks that you could do to use existing tools to make that development even easier. I mean, it, it, there's a reason this has gotten so much attention. It's really been written from the ground up to ease a lot of these getting started with scientific publishing and scientific communication. And then if you have the ability to also even write extensions that some are highlighted here, like the inclusion of little snippets to save you a boatload of typing of like including a, a link to a video presentation or a link to a, a Twitter post that we were just talking about. There are lots of the extension ecosystem is expanding and I'm interested to see where that goes as well. But even even with that aside, you still have so much that's built in the Quarto that is right there at your fingertips to make this a lot easier. So. As I said, all my workshop materials or any other presentations I do, Quartal is plan A until I hear otherwise because I get to, get to have the different output formats for different customers. And yes, there are some that still like the PowerPoint stuff. We don't judge. We don't judge here. But yes, they could do even PowerPoint as well if you need to, of course. <laughs> Only if you need to. Yes, that was a... <laughs> I don't, I don't mince words here only if you need to, but, um, we'll, we'll say that that's another rant for another day. Why don't we conclude our highlight coverage here with something that honestly hits pretty deep. I have been in situations where I thought, oh, this project yeah, I'll develop a couple scripts. Maybe it'll be a small app. Then it takes off. Then more people get involved. Suddenly your code base for that little project has increased maybe twice the size, maybe five times the size. And then before you know it, you're in a wild west of trying to corral all this together, making sure you're effectively testing or developing and, and you're getting lost and the minutia of mixed up styles and the like. So that's where our last highlight can really help you set the stage the right way. Where Alexander Bartram, who is founder of the information management software Activia Info, 
was joined by our weekly's own curator, Real Nakagorora, to lead a very insightful webinar that's available for you to watch called Managing Large Code Bases in R. So yes, this resonated quite well with me. There are lots of very important tips here. I can't wait to hear your perspective on this, Mike, but certainly the ones that, again, hit kind of deep are having a unified style across all of your developers, which is something I did not do initially. And we definitely paid for it with some wasted effort, so to speak, to corral all that. And really the, the mindset of how you structure repeatable analysis or repeatable code via functions and just what is the mindset of the typical size of a function and how you can chain these all together to eventually create perhaps a package internally that you know assembles all this together so that they can be reused across projects. So there's a there's definitely a bit of an art, but the very practical tips that Alexander and Rio share here are really worth your time to watch. So those are just two of the things that resonate with me. But Mike, I don't know if this one hit to you deep as well, but boy, I watched this and I was like, oh, oh, the pain. But, you know, better late than never. <laughs> no, uh, you know, managing large code bases. As a consultant at Catchbrook, you know, we just get to hand off the code base to the client at the end of the project. <laughs> so we don't have to manage anything. Just kidding. We will absolutely help you manage <laughs> your code base. Uh, just you have to keep us on retainer. That's all. Uh, <laughs> but it, it was very cool first to see a member of the R Weekly team facilitating this webinar. So go Rio. But these, these topics are, are super important because I think in any, you know, corporation or, or organization that is using software to drive decision making, right, you're, you're going to create code bases and, and some of them are going to be small and others are absolutely going to be larger. So they touch just about every important piece of, of the code base management lifecycle. As you said, Eric, functional programming and best practices for that documentation, organizing functions into packages, using version control. And I even think if I was going through Rio's presentation notes, as well as trying to, to watch the webinar, you have both of all of these links um, in the show notes as well. Uh, I think it even ends in, in GitHub Actions. So we're kind of coming full circle in our weekly to show you how to automate some of your work as well. So it's, it's really another blog post, another set of materials that's trying to walk you through the life cycle of a project and show you the best practices for implementing um, this, you know, these, these large code bases. And it's a really important topic. It, you need to get out in front of this in your org as soon as possible, because if you start putting together large code bases without these practices mentioned in this talk, that they will become unmanageable. Um, and if you haven't employed any or, or most of these practices before, in your organization, my advice would be to attach them to your next project as a learning experience for your team, because big topics like this are hard to just suddenly implement across everything all at once. You know, tie it to one project and go from there. Uh, that's that's my advice, at least. And, and like I said before, if, if we're going to do computational science and take that work seriously and make important decisions off of it, 
then we really need to be rigorous. Um, and that means using all of the tools and methodologies discussed in this webinar. So well worth a watch. I think it's a great way to round out uh, these highlights this week. Yeah, and the other thing that it brought to mind is it's certainly from your personal perspective as you're working on these projects, yes, it's always a great opportunity to put these in practice on your next project and the like. The part I definitely want to work on for certainly next year as I take on larger projects is empowering other team members to have that similar mindset and making it as easy for them to learn these same ideas as well. Certainly this webinar itself will probably be something I link to in terms of some internal documentation. Like, oh, here's a short explanation of how this all works, but also taking advantage of ways that you within your organization can either spin up additional documentation sites or additional template repositories that have some of this kind of baked in already, or at least set the stage for it. You would be surprised at how important that is, even if you as like someone who may have learned it already may take that for granted. But anytime you bring someone new, you want to make it so that they can get on board with what you expect out of contributions without a lot of fuss and hopefully make it very straightforward for them to pick up on. That was something I've learned the hard way, but I did take great lengths earlier this year to put on a lot of the things I've learned from best practices and infrastructure set up into an internal documentation site, which is one small step into this, this area. But make it as easy for people to get started with this, I think is critically important. Otherwise, it's just you kind of championing all this, but you might need a little help to make it more spread across your specific group or organization as well. Sure, yeah, there, there's a component of convincing people why they should change maybe their current bad habits, right? And you have to you have to prove the value behind that. So, so leverage blog posts like this, leverage all the different resources that we have available to help you in that in those conversations and in that convincing uh, of your colleagues that these best practices will move your organization forward well summarized i couldn't say better myself and of course that's just the tip of the iceberg so to speak with the resources we have available in this issue because there's a whole lot more that we didn't cover here but it will take some time to highlight a couple additional things that caught our eye and from my perspective if you've been following what's been happening in the R community, you might know there's been a little bit of focus in terms of dependencies and various R packages. I will leave it at that, but the issue will, will point you in the right direction. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> oh, goodness, yeah. Um, but I will put a little bit of a plug here for an additional post we have in the issue from a good friend of mine, Ari Lamstein, who actually was in my workshop at RStudioConf, so... Shout out to Ari if you're listening, but he wrote a recent blog post talking about an update he's made to his open source package called Chloroplither. I never said it out loud, so don't hate me, Ari, if I got it wrong. But it's not even so much about the update to the package itself, but the blog post is a very kind of insightful piece that gives you a window to what can be a dilemma that a developer with something like a piece of software that's been released open source that they face when it comes to maintenance and the impact of their decision on whether they keep going and they maintain it or they just kind of let it be. 
So very insightful ideas. And certainly in this current uh, situation, it was very timely, but really well-written post by Ari. So I highly recommend checking that out. But uh, Mike, what did you find? Yeah, this episode is brought to you by our studio package manager <laughs> and all the great things it has to offer. Just kidding. Uh, the, uh, the, the other post that I wanted to highlight was Kasima Meyer's post about mastering debugging in R. And this is, again, a topic that I don't feel gets enough coverage. But like Kasima, I would argue that you need to take the time probably just an hour to learn about debugging in R and R Studio. It will save you way more than just that hour you invested during the lifetime of your programming journey. A well-placed browser function in my Shiny app uh, is amazingly informative in letting me walk step-by-step through my app's code and see the intermittent results along the way, something that you could not do. Otherwise, um, that's just you know a little tidbit uh, from me and from Kasima's post. So definitely one to check out if you haven't dipped your toe yet or are just starting to dip your toe into learning about debugging best practices. Yeah, this um, brought back memories of many years ago. We were doing kind of an internal R training of a series of like bite-sized topics and debugging did come up. And it kind of shocked me that those coming from other languages and we won't name names, but it has three letters in it, were shocked at how much easier it is to debug within R once you know about these various built-in utilities. Well, what I liken to the browser function is, you know there's been a mishap that occurred, that's why you're seeing the error, but browser's gonna take you at the time before the accident, so to speak, so that you can see what led up to it and you can inspect that environment. And I tell you that is easily the debugging technique I use the most. It is literally that and the other ones are like very minuscule compared to browser. It is such a valuable part of my arsenal. I can't highlight that enough, but she covers way more than just that. So very, very good uh, find there, Mike. But um, there's way more than that as well. So please check out rweekly.org. You're gonna find the latest issue, all the resources we mentioned, Certainly links to additional great content out there of the multimedia variety as well in the videos and podcast section where you'll see all the back catalog of this very podcast as well if you want to catch up on what you missed. And um, if you like to have some new content featured that you've seen online, whether you saw a great post on Twitter, you saw a great blog post or whatnot, just send that our way via a pull request to our upcoming issue draft all in Markdown. Markdown's all the rage these days. So if you've heard about how much Quartal has been taking over, well, that's all based on Markdown. So very easy to get set up. And if you are on Twitter and you want to have a post conveniently shared, just send a note to the rweekly underscore submit Twitter handle, and we'll get that into the issue as well. That's another little nugget that may not get a lot of attention, but thanks, Mike, for highlighting that last time. And we're going to keep drumming that along as well. But uh, yes, and it's hard to believe we are almost approaching the big 100 of this very podcast. So I have a little, um, you might say, request or a little ask for all of you listening. If you had a favorite moment or a favorite resource that you learned from R Weekly, 
send us a shout on Twitter. We'll be glad to feature that in episode 100 of the things that you've liked the most that you've learned from our weekly. Maybe it's a skill that you've been able to enhance or a new find, anything big or small. We'd love to hear about it. So how you can submit that to us? Well, you can find me at, at the Rcast on Twitter if you want to submit your request to me. But Mike, where can they find you? I love that idea, Eric. And we're looking forward to hearing about everybody's favorite uh, through the last almost 100 episodes. You can find me and tag me as well in any requests uh, at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really, I know for me personally, before I joined our weekly, I've learned so much and being involved on the curation side just took that up another notch, but it awakened so many things that I didn't think we're out there. That's what we're all about. I'd love to hear what y'all been learning. So, well, I'm learning that our time's almost up. So we better close up shop here, but that has been episode 97 and we'll be back with episode 98 of the RV Highlights podcast with likely some random trivia about 1998 as well next week.